Second Corinthians chapter eight, beginning in verse one, we read. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others for... You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. But by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality as it is written. He who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Paul in Second Corinthians chapter eight and nine will speak about the grace of giving. The chapters include illustrations and instructions. The saints in Corinth have taken up an offering. They've taken up an offering for the destitute believers who find themselves in overwhelming trouble in Jerusalem. And the illustrations Paul uses for sacrificial giving include the Macedonian believers in verses 1 through 5, and then the Lord Jesus Christ himself in verse 9. So, Paul asks that the gifts be brought to the church in verse 1. That they come from the heart in verses 2 through 9. That they be measured proportionately in verses 10 through 15. And then later we're going to discover that they need to be handled with transparency and honesty and integrity in verses 16 through 24. So the subject of giving, as you can imagine, is going to generate a lot of different emotions. Terror. Greed. Guilt. Grudges, but sometimes it'll generate joy. I'm a dad. My kids are grown. 
Yes, don't let my youthful appearance fool you. I am somebody's grandfather. And today is my Maddie girl's birthday. She's one year old. And when you observe grandchildren, you notice something that they have a keen sense of justice and ownership. As a matter of fact, when the kids get together, even before they can actually form sentences, they're able to say the word mine. This is mine. This belongs to me. No. Yes. Give it to me. Have you ever seen a child with her toys? They're reluctant to share. I think that sometimes it's true of adults as well. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, Our time and talent and treasures are not toys to be grasped, but gifts to be shared. In fact, God delights in our sharing them. He loves a cheerful giver, which is the quote that Paul will write about in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Because you see, giving falls into two broad categories. Both start in the heart. One comes from a profound appreciation for all that God has given and flows into our family and flows into our church and flows into our community. And the other is a deep seated desire to hold on to what we think belongs to us. And so Paul refuses and note this. He refuses to use manipulation. He refuses to use coercion. He, you, he refuses to use guilt. And later Paul will write, not grudgingly or under compulsion, but willfully and cheerfully. And so in this passage, Paul speaks of the Macedonian believers. First, surrendering their will to the Savior and then offering a sacrificial gesture of their wealth in verses 1 through 5. And how very much like Jesus, who's very rich and then becomes poor so that he can make the spiritually poor rich in verse 9. And then Paul's instructions give knowingly in verses 6 through 8. Give willingly in verses 10 and 11. Give realistically in verse 12. Give confidently in verses 13 through 15. The challenges are amazing. As a matter of fact, the way that I've broken down this passage is the challenge to give includes the desire that we have. Not just that you have or that I have. We desire the grace and favor of God in verses 1 through 5. We desire to excel in the spirit of giving in verses 6 and 7. We desire to prove our sincerity and our love in verse 8. We desire to follow the example of Jesus in verse 9. We desire to honor our commitments in verse 10. We desire a willing and a ready heart in verses 11 and 12. We desire an opportunity to divide the sorrow and share the joy in verses 13 through 15. So look again in verse 1. Moreover, brethren... We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. The transition that Paul makes is abrupt. Remember what we've been looking at. Paul has been misunderstood in his ministry. Forgiveness and reconciliation has taken place in verses in chapter 7. A revival has broke out in Corinth. And with revival, Paul brings up this issue of generosity. 
So he says, moreover, brethren, we made known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia is that geographical region that was north of Corinth that occupies what you and I would call the modern Baltic states. But Macedonia included churches that you would be familiar with. Philippi, Thessalonica, and those of you who have written or read the book of Acts, um, Berea. Remember, Berea was the church where they were more noble because they searched the scriptures to see if these things are so. The book of Philippians dedicated to the church at Philippi. The book of Thessalonians dedicated to the church at Thessalonica. Those are the three that we know about, but we can rest assured that there were also multiple congregations. Macedonia had a rich heritage. It was known for its abundant natural resources. As a matter of fact, if I could again take all of you with me and we could take a trip into Greece and then we made our way into Macedonia, it would be a mountainous region. It's very much like Colorado. In other words, it's filled with natural resources. It was the gravy train, if you will, of the ancient world. It had gold. It had silver. Remember, this is the place that gave birth to King Philip. Now, you may not know King Philip, but you're very familiar with his famous son, Alexander the Great. And you're familiar with Alexander the Great's famous teacher, Aristotle. His famous teacher had a famous teacher named Plato, and his famous teacher had a famous teacher named Socrates. Socrates taught Plato, and Plato taught Aristotle, and Aristotle taught Alexander, and Alexander conquered the world. And the resources and the riches poured into Macedonia. But in the centuries that followed, Macedonia was stripped of its wealth. It was vandalized of its resources. Generation after generation took all of the gold and took all of the silver and stripped it of its resources. And finally, Rome came and completely decimated the area. You see, the churches were what you and I would call poor and disadvantaged, but they were wealthy in the abundance of God's grace So Paul is in effect saying the churches in Macedonia were filled with grace. And how was that evidenced? The grace of God was evidenced in their overwhelming generosity. As a matter of fact, in verse two, he says that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. The Macedonian churches had gone through trial, deep testing, difficulties, just like some of you. Maybe you had a job that was very generous, but things have changed. The political and economic climate has gone in a different direction. There's been trial and affliction and testing. And so in verse three, it says, for I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. Paul is using the expression they were freely willing 
to speak of their generosity and their gifts. They gave of their own accord. In other words, Paul is saying they didn't need any pressure. They didn't need any coaxing. They didn't need any reminder. They wanted to know how they could give. They wanted to know how they could help. I'm sure that Paul brought news from Jerusalem about what was going on in the life and the ministry of the poor saints. Their immediate response was, how can we give? How can we help? Much like you. When the hurricane hit New Orleans. Much like you. When the tornadoes surround Moore, Oklahoma. We are a country and a people who are generous. And I think most of you know that the generosity comes not necessarily from those who are wealthiest, but those who have the least opportunity to give. And they have this profound and generous willingness to help. And so that's what Paul is basically saying, that in spite of their deep testings, in spite of their trials, (laughs) they were willing to help. They wanted to give. You know, this might be the very first message that some of you have ever heard me give about giving. You'll note that we have agape boxes around the room. As a matter of fact, some of you may have came here for weeks or even months and and you, you, you never saw a plate passed and you never saw a formal offering taken. And finally, out of curiosity, you, you come up to me and said, how do you guys actually take an offering? And I said, well, we take an offering in a very non-traditional way. There's little agape boxes around the room and you give because you want to. You see, if you make it really difficult for people to give and they actually have to find a way to give. I'm probably not doing a very good job. Paul uses that amazing expression. They were freely willing this is so different from what you see on Christian, so-called Christian TV, isn't it? Paul says, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. Note, note what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't beg for money. He isn't guilty of what my pastor used to call poor mouthing. Do you know what poor mouthing is? Poor mouthing is when you pray, oh, God, you know that I could use a new pair of shoes, size 9D. Yeah, in the hopes that someone will overhear the prayer and go, oh, the poor pastor. Oh, well, I have a pair of size 9D shoes. That's what he called poor mouthing. Creating some sort of opportunity so that you would try and figure out a way to help. But don't get me wrong. When Paul doesn't beg for money, he also says that the believers insisted on giving in verse five. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. He gives a glowing report of the churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica. They are rich in grace. They are rich in the favor of God. They are rich in the blessings of God. And I want you to know just a few things. Number one, the churches gave to help others. 
They gave willingly and generously. They gave despite profound poverty and trial and affliction. There was great suffering in the churches. In great affliction, it says in verse 2, they stand for Jesus. And and their stand for Jesus included pain and persecution. Again, in verse 2, when it says deep poverty, it means down to the depths. My granny, who grew up in the Depression, would often talk about poverty and need. I think I've told you that when commercials would come on in the 60s, there was that very, very popular commercial, the Campbell's Soup commercial. It would say, stir up the Campbell's Soup is good food. And my granny would go, soup ain't good food. Soup's what you eat when you ain't got good food. And then we would talk about the poverty and riding the rails. We would talk about the poverty of, I would say, hey, look, When we were so poor, and then you would say, how poor were you? Well, all five of us kids had to sleep in the same bed. I would stay out late at night just so I could sleep on the top. How poor were you? We ate ketchup sandwiches. Someone would say, I like ketchup sandwiches. And and my grandma would go, without the bread? That's poor. That's deep poverty. And again, remember, in that particular region, there was constant pain, constant persecution, constant war. It was taking its toll on the region. There were Roman taxes. There was the confiscation of resources. But in spite of that kind of pain and that kind of affliction and that kind of sorrow, there was a persistent joy. There was an abundance of joy. So how is it possible that you could be so poor and be so abundant in joy? And the reason, of course, is because their sins were forgiven. They had come to know Jesus. They were led and fed by God's Holy Spirit. They knew Jesus. They were committed to living for Jesus. They recognized God's grace and blessing. And when it came to help, they helped and they were willing to give Liberally. Now, again, liberally here doesn't mean like in our political system where you talk about conservatives and liberals. It actually means in the original meaning generosity. That's what liberal meant. Paul calls it the riches of their liberality. The the original language is interesting. Hapolititos. It means a singleness of mind that's noted by sincerity. It's a picture of a person who's not a bleeding heart, but an open heart. And the churches in Macedonia were determined to give. And number two, they gave beyond their ability. And no special appeal had to be made. There was no pledge drives. There was no bake sales. There was no thermometers. And they gave insistently, begging for the privilege to share. And this might sound crazy to you. But Paul seems to point out that fact. Paul doesn't go, I preached this exciting sermon I reached down to the depths of my ability to communicate the need. And the people began, the money started pouring in. He doesn't say that at all. He basically says exactly the opposite. He says that they gave. That they insisted on giving. 
And the reason why? They insisted on giving for the privilege of ministry. It was for the privilege of of ministry. In what sense? In the privilege of fellowship. And that's actually the term that he uses. Fellowship included giving. And note what that means. Giving is a way of fellowshipping with others. And they gave to the Lord first. And they gave themselves to Christ. Remember what Paul says. Look, here's how the gift went. First, they gave themselves to Jesus. Then they gave themselves from their resources. These dear believers gave all that they were in order to have Christ. Then they they next dedicated their possessions to Jesus. What did all of this mean? The Macedonians dedicated their lives to Jesus, their possessions to Jesus. Then they dedicated themselves to the minister and their lives to Christ and to serve. And in, in a very real sense, to serve Paul. Then they become a part of Paul's ministry. And then Paul specifically says they gave their own selves to the Lord and us. By the will of God. What in the world does that mean? I suspect it means that they united their efforts to minister. In other words, they joined hands together in order to make ministry possible. G. Campbell Morgan writes, contributions to the work of the Lord are only valuable as they are the gifts of those who themselves are yielded to God. And G. Campbell Morgan has it right. Guess what? Your generosity doesn't really mean a whole lot. Well, I'm willing to put $20 in the, in the poor box. I, I actually really mean this. Keep your money. Because God wants something way different from the $20 that you put in the poor box. God wants your heart. He wants your soul. He wants your life. He wants your love. He wants your attitude. And what Paul is pointing out is something that ministers rarely point out. And that is the least valuable thing that you have to offer to the ministry is your money. And the most valuable thing that you have to offer is your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and your affections. You see, here's what Paul is pointing out, whether you want to hear it or not. Giving, apart from having a right relationship with God and Christ, doesn't accomplish anything eternally. What an amazing insight. Poor churches uniting together in order to fellowship with even poorer churches. That's the message. And look, we desire to excel in the spirit of giving. Look what it says in verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. Here, when Paul uses the word grace, we know in the New Testament, grace means God's unmerited favor. It means resources. It means all of those things. But in this particular instance, I think that what he's doing is he's using the word grace as a synonym for generosity. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, it would appear that the Corinthian church, remember Paul talks about the reality of the need in Jerusalem, they take up an offering that they're going to gather together and they're going to take back to Jerusalem. The Corinthian church apparently was going to pledge to contribute to the needs of the churches in Jerusalem, but 
for reasons that we don't necessarily know. And the text doesn't say they decided to pull the plug on the project. We're not given any clue why the project was discontinued. If there's a clue, it's probably 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Remember what we've already talked about. Was Corinth guilty of divisiveness and divisions? Was Corinth guilty of carnality? Were they guilty of immaturity? Will division, carnality, and immaturity squash generosity? I I think that the answer is yes. But now, now the church was in revival. The sin and the separation, the broken circumstances of the church was put back together. Minister and ministry were reunited. The Corinthian church and their pastor were on the same page, going in the same direction. And so Paul, in effect, is saying, guess what? It's time to revisit the project. So what does it mean when he says, so we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. I think it means that the Corinthians were now able to contribute financially to the work of the Lord. They were to support the needs of the ministry by giving to those who were in desperate need and the gift of giving has been given by God to men for the privilege of partnership in the ministry and the work of God and in the work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul urges Timothy to finish the work, to complete the project. And then he gives this note. He says in verse 7, But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us. See that you abound in this grace also. What grace? The grace of generosity. But Paul lists an abundance of gifts. He goes, Corinthian church. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians? That you come behind no one in gifts. Corinthian church. He lists the gifts. Look at the abundance of the gifts in your congregation. You have the gift of faith and the gift of speech and the gift of knowledge. The Corinthians had an abundance of spiritual gifts, incredible spiritual resources. And with an emphasis on those gifts, faith. What kind of faith? The kind of faith that has confidence and trust in God that enabled them to walk through life's circumstances with victory. They have the gift of faith. Do you understand about the gift of faith? The gift of faith is a supernatural ability to trust God for amazing things. I think I've told some of you the story of Mr. Frank Minkle. Mr. Frank Minkle was a person who prayed his guts out. And he also had the gift of faith. One day he came to me and he said, you're going to be on the radio. I said, no, I'm not. He says, yes, you are. You need to be on the radio. I go, no, I don't. I don't have the time and I don't have the wherewithal to do it. I don't have the provision and I don't have the financial circumstances in order to do it. And he goes, then I'm going to pray and God's going to provide it. And he prayed. Not just for a week. Not just for a month. Not just for a year. He prayed And he prayed and he prayed and God miraculously brought a radio ministry into existence. 
apart from me, even apart from my willingness to do it. You see, people who have faith have the supernatural ability to trust God even when others don't trust God. And he look what he says, utterance, speech, the ability to share the gospel. But those of you who are familiar with first Corinthians and you've read chapter 12 and you've read chapter 13 and you've read chapter 14, you've you've read those interesting statements about the gift of tongues, supernatural utterances, the languages of heaven and the languages of earth. And the Corinthians have this supernatural ability to speak. Speak, whether natural or supernatural, to share the gospel with words, the doctrines of God and Christ, the supernatural gift of knowledge. That's the understanding of God's word in all diligence. That's the energy and zeal necessary to carry out the work of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then he says, and your love for us, the care of the minister who serves the Lord Jesus faithfully. And part of the point that Paul is making, since you have excellence in all of these areas, doesn't it make sense to you that you should excel in generosity as well? Giving and helping others in desperate need was a privilege as well as a duty and a responsibility. But I also need to point something out to you. That all of the things that he talked about, faith, speech, knowledge, didn't really matter to a a whole lot absent generosity. Again, those of you who are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and you've read the love chapter not once, not twice, you hear it at every wedding that you ever go to. You understand when Paul writes, even if you give your body to be burned, but you have not love, it doesn't profit you anything. Distributing to the necessity of the saints given to hospitality, Paul will write in Romans chapter 12, verse 13. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul will write, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul isn't just simply a theologian who's content to have Bible studies and impress you with his knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. He is a person who understands, admits and embraces that real churches have to act in a generous way towards one another. And so he also says that we desire to prove the sincerity of our love. And that's how we do it in verse eight. He says, I I speak, I speak not by commandment. But I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. In other words, Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to prove their sincerity, to prove their love. And note again the statement. You should underline it. I speak not by commandment. What do you suppose that means? If you read anything other than I'm not commanding you or forcing you to give, you've got the text wrong. Paul isn't saying I'm forcing you to do this. He's saying exactly the opposite. I am not commanding you or forcing you to give because the moment that it's commanded, the moment it's coerced, 
The moment it's manipulated, then it becomes something other than a God-honoring gift. Does that shock you? Does that surprise you? If giving is forced, if it's coerced, if it's manipulated, it may have some value to the person that you gave it to. Okay, here, take the money. Go buy a hamburger. But it doesn't have any spiritual value. It doesn't have any eternal value. God is pleased only with those gifts that are given cheerfully, willfully, gladly. And so now I'm going to say something that may or may not upset my board. If you can't give cheerfully, willfully and gladly, please, please, please keep your money. Don't put it in the agape box. You're not doing me a favor and you're not doing you a favor. It has no value. Because the truth is, I need something more than your money. I need your spiritual well-being. I need for your heart to be right with God. And I need your conscience to be clean before God. And I need you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. If this is the case, and I think that it is the case, it seems the only worthwhile motivation for giving is a loving desire to honor Jesus, a love for the Lord Jesus, a willingness to demonstrate that love by obeying Jesus to go and reach and teach and minister to the watching world. And the second motivation for giving is based on the sacrificial example for others. And the only reason why I bring that up is because that's exactly what Paul has brought up. He's brought up the example of the Macedonians and he's going to bring up the example of the Lord Jesus. Love is proved not simply in what we say, but in what we do. And look what he says. We desire to follow the example of Jesus in verse nine. For, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. He became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We could comfortably stay on verse 9 for the next three weeks. But I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to remind you of the context in which he's giving it. The Lord Jesus is very rich. The Lord Jesus became very poor. Why did Jesus do that? That's the simplicity of the verse. Paul says he was rich. He became poor. Why did he do it? So that he could make the spiritually poor. Spiritually rich. Is Paul even hinting. That he could make the materially poor. So that they could be materially rich. There's no hint of that even in the text. Not even a little hint. If you actually want to know about this text. You should probably go to Philippians chapter 2. And read the entire chapter. In that context. Paul speaks of Jesus in his humility. He, he becomes 
the Lord Jesus, the eternal Jesus, the self-existent Jesus takes on a second nature. Jesus humbles himself. He becomes flesh. He embraces a cross. He experiences humiliation in order to embrace exaltation. In the backdrop of poverty and plenty, Paul paints a portrait of the most generous person who has ever lived. The Lord Jesus. Now, remember what I said. Grace is used in a number of ways in the New Testament. And I'm going to suggest to you here, Paul is using the word grace as a synonym for generosity. And so Paul is begging the question. How generous was Jesus? How do we measure his generosity? How do we speak of an eternal being, a self-existent being, the creator and the sustainer of the universe? How do we measure the wealth and the majesty and the power and the dignity of Jesus? Now, how do you describe a being who abandons that wealth and embraces poverty so that we can be eternally enriched? Moorhead writes, he was rich in possessions and power and homage and fellowship and happiness. He became poor in station, in circumstances, in his relations with men. We are urged to give a little money and clothing and food, but he gave himself. I think that's interesting. And I think that sometimes people overlook the little treasure that's contained in the verse. The preexistence of Jesus. So when Paul says he was rich, what? When was Jesus ever rich? He was born of a virgin in a in a manger where you feed cattle. Was he Rich in his birth? Was he rich in his childhood? Was he a trust fund baby set up for life by the wise men who came from the east and go, Hey, we're going to take care of the kid for the rest of his life. We'll give you some gold, some frankincense and some myrrh. It will be like a trust fund to last you for the rest of your life. Do you think Jesus really was a trust fund baby? I don't think so. I think that the, that the wise men really did give him wealth. That would be necessary to escape in order to avoid annihilation. So what in the world is Paul talking about? In the New Testament, Jesus is described as a person who has no place to rest his head. The foxes have hold, the birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to, to lay his head. Paul is talking about riches in eternity. He's talking about glorious majesty. He's talking about a court in heaven with his father. He becomes poor, not simply at his birth and not simply in his childhood and not simply in his adulthood. But he is going to go to a cross and he is going to die in the most undignified fashion that was available in the ancient world. And there's no more persuasive argument that could be given in the midst of Paul's thoughts on Christian giving than this one. And so Paul writes in verse 10, we wanted to, we want to honor our commitments. In verse 10 it says, and in this I give advice. It's to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also complete the doing of it. 
In other words, remember what I said earlier, the the Corinthian church had begun a project and they put a halt to it. And now Paul is basically saying, look, now's the time to go forward. Moffat says, but I tell you what I think about it. It's to your interest to go on with this enterprise for you started it up last year and you were not you were the first not merely to do anything, but to want to do something. And so what Paul is basically saying to the Corinthians is, I know what you really think about this situation. So he talks about honoring commitments and then he talks about a a willing and a ready heart in verse 11. But now you must complete the doing of it. This is Paul's way of saying, in effect, go forward, move ahead, do the best that you can, show that you can finish what you started. And again, it's not just simply in this particular context, it's the context of generosity, but the overarching principle still remains the same for every single person. Finish what you started. You start a project, finish the project. What was the delay? What was keeping them from finishing the project? We don't know. So Paul says, do according to your ability now. What does that mean? Don't wait for the future in the hopes that your wealth or your resources will increase in the future. In other words, the Corinthians might have been saying, you know, the political, the social and the cultural climate right now is such that money is really, really, really hard to come by. And you know what we're thinking? We're thinking if we could postpone this little offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. If we could put this off to next week or next month or next year, we're pretty certain that we're going to be in a much better financial position and that we're going to be able to be way more generous in the future. And Paul is basically going to say, do what you can do now. Don't wait for the future in the hopes that your wealth or your resources will increase. Look what it says in verse 12. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. It would seem that one reason the Corinthians gave, like I said, we're going to have more later. But Paul is reminding them of something important. And you know what the important thing is? It's not the amount that matters. If their real desire is to have fellowship in this matter with those saints, God accepts their gift no matter how small. And this becomes an important issue for each and every one of us. Because if you think even for a moment that God is happier with the person who gives a million dollars... And thrilled with a person who gives $100,000 and rejoices when a person gives $10,000 and sort of laughs it off when they give $100 and then actually is upset and angry when you give $10, you're missing the whole point. Because it is not the amount that you give. The, the, The important point becomes Your heart's desire in the matter to participate in the fellowship to which you're expressing generosity towards. 
This is what Jesus meant in the New Testament when he sees the poor widow in the treasury and she comes. And you'll remember the story how the disciples see man after man giving generous amounts of money, pouring huge riches into the treasury. And a sheepish sheepish woman comes by, just quietly steals into the moment. And, And there was a gigantic thing. It was called a trumpet because it was in the shape of a trumpet. And when you could when you heard 30, 50 pieces, shekels of silver, it would ring down almost like you're playing a video game and you would see lights and flashes and it would it would be dun da da da. And there's two little widow's mites that goes into the trumpet and it is as if nobody hears anything. And Jesus points out that she gave more than everyone else. Because they gave out of their surplus, but she gave what she really couldn't afford to give. And so Paul reminds them, it's not the amount. That's not what matters. What matters is what's going on inside of your heart and your willingness to participate in the fellowship of the saints. And then he says in verse 13 that we desire to divide the sorrow and the joy. Look what it says. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened. Look what he's saying. Paul is saying, look. I don't have any desire whatsoever to put the Corinthians in a bind or to make a financial hardship. Paul isn't saying I'm trying to minister to the saints in Jerusalem by putting a hardship on the backs of the saints at Corinth. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, but by an equality. That now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. That their abundance also may supply your lack. That there may be equality. Now I want you to think about what Paul is writing. In a very real sense this verse describes God's program of relief. So what are we supposed to do when we recognize an area of need? We channel the funds to the area of need. And so what Paul is basically saying is look. money's coming from Macedonia and Corinth and going to Jerusalem. There's going to come a time where money's going to come from Jerusalem and go to Macedonia and Corinth. When he says, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. Here's what he's basically saying. You go from one place to another in one circumstance to another. And there's going to come a time when you have a whole lot and you give to those who have very little. And then there's going to come a time when you have only a very little. And somebody comes through with a whole lot. It's his way of saying not just simply what goes around comes around. What he basically says is God in his grace and his mercy and his benevolence and his sovereignty and his wonder. Makes some people quite literally rich. So that they can minister. And he makes some people poor so that they can receive and that he allows the poor to get way more than they could have ever dreamed because one day they'll give back. In verse 15, it says, as it is written, he who gathers much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Do you know what he's quoting from? Exodus. Do you remember Exodus chapter 16? 
Verse 18, do you remember this story as the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness and God in his grace and his mercy rained manna down from heaven and some were able to gather much, some were able to gather less, but it didn't matter because when the manna was distributed, each person was given the same amount, one omer. That's about five pints of manna. And so he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Why? Because the people who tried to hoard the manna. It became like an episode on fear factor. Worms went into the manna. Maggots began to eat away. It would be like if you get those fresh strawberries or cherries and you get ready to munch into it and there is a worm's head sticking out. Is that gross? I'll tell you what's even grosser. You bite into the cherry and there's half of a worm there. (laughs) And that's what Paul is emphasizing. Paul is emphasizing that the good God in heaven will give exactly what's needed. In McDonald, he writes, God intends each man to have a share of the good things of life. Some gather more, however, some less. And those who have more should share with those who have less. But God permits the unequal distribution of property, not so that the rich can enjoy it, but but share it with the poor. But make no mistake about it. God isn't even for a moment suggesting that we be foolish with the resources that we've been given to us. Old Josh won a million dollars in the lottery and his minister was assigned the task of bringing him the good news. But rather than run the risk of a heart attack, the minister thought it best to break the news to Josh. He said, hey, Josh, do you think you'd ever win the lottery? And Josh said, probably not. I never win those things. Well, what would you do if you won? Well, I'd probably give half of it to the church and the minister fell over dead. (laughs) You know, it's easy to be generous with things you don't really have and that you probably never will have. Someone has said that the true test of generosity is not in how much you give, but in how much you have left. George Mueller said, put it this way, God judges what we give by what we keep. So how do you know if you are a cheerful giver? And we're going to visit this a little bit later on. The cheerful giver doesn't measure the cost of what's given. The cheerful giver sets his or her heart on pleasing and cheering the person to whom the gift is given. And so Paul gives the Christian a secret. You don't have to be rich to be generous. But you do have to be generous in order to be generous. So Paul will illustrate the example of sacrificial giving. He says, give knowingly in verses 6 through 8. He says, give because giving should never and can never be separated from the other spiritual gifts. Give willingly in verse 10 and 11. Give realistically in verse 12. Give confidently in verses 13 through 15. So there's really only one question left. What do you want to give him? And I know 
what I wanted to give him when I met him. I wanted to give him my wickedness and my wretchedness, my weirdness, but not necessarily my wealth. But guess what? When I gave him my wickedness and I gave him my wretchedness and I gave him all of the stupidity and all of the tragedy and all of the horror of my life, the rest came very easy. You know, when it comes to giving, some people will start and stop at nothing. The pagan emperor Caesar Augustus gave an expensive gift to a person he wanted to honor. And the person was so overwhelmed, he said, Caesar, this gift is way more than I could possibly receive. And Caesar responded, but it's not too great a gift for me to give. Caesar understood that his gift became a reflection of himself. It's interesting to me how many pagan people how many sinful people, how many unbelievers understand generosity. Again, the churches gave an adversity and affliction. Their giving was spontaneous. Their giving was self-surrender. They provided a model of grace and liberality and generosity and equality. Paul? Paul says, give today because you have. Be willing to receive tomorrow because you haven't. What we've earned by toil shouldn't be distributed in folly. So how we earned it and how we have it should never be destroyed by unwise stewardship. You see, there's a reason why God has entrusted to you what God has entrusted to you. It's because he expects you to be wise and careful and thoughtful and biblical. Paul will consider some principles for wise stewardship. He's going to talk about honesty and transparency and accountability. But that's for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. That we are being introduced to things that for some might seem uncomfortable. But Lord, I pray that once they know the truth. About what the Bible teaches about generosity. What the Bible teaches about giving. What the Bible teaches about liberality. That it becomes just one among many spiritual gifts given by the Holy Spirit and designed for the edification of the body and created so that there would be mutual support and mutual ministry. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your generosity. And Lord, we thank you for the generosity of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for the person who struggles <laughs> with generosity. I pray that for them, you would awaken in their heart a deep sense of gratitude and joy over the abundance of the grace that's been shed inside of our hearts. 
In Jesus' name. Amen.